Bat shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Torah study. Uh, we, this year, are going through the Torah portions and emphasizing about how the Torah is for all people and that these lessons apply to all of us. So with that said, let me take you to this week's portion, which begins in Exodus chapter 6. We're in the second portion of the book of Exodus. And normally it would start at essentially verse 2, where it says, And God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The expression, and I appeared in the Hebrew is vayera. And that's the name, the Hebrew name for this portion. However, when I teach this portion, I always like to go back into the previous chapter just a little bit to kind of set the stage for what will be the conversation between Moses and the Lord at, so that we understand what is God saying in this particular portion. And let me take you all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 15, and let's touch on those things before we get into this particular portion. At verse 15 it says, Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, and it is the fault of your own people. But he said, you are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go now and work, for you shall be given no straw, yet you must deliver the same quota of books. And the foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. Before we go any further, this is the, the old line of making bricks without straw. I want you to note that this is the first form of serious oppression that came upon the children of Israel when Pharaoh was dealing with them, and the, the, uh, Moses had come back to say, hey, Pharaoh, uh, God wants you to let his people go. And as soon as there was this kind of a divide with Pharaoh, Pharaoh had basically forgotten Joseph in the previous days and what Joseph had done for Egypt. He's got a whole new agenda, and he's forgotten the past. And so he has decided that he's going to put it to the children of Israel because Moses has come and said the Lord wants them to go. And I want you to take note of a simple principle here. This is the first level of oppression where you're, uh, when, as believers, where you're still trying to do what you're supposed to do, and now you have great difficulty uh, doing it. Right now, in the United States and around the world, because of the COVID thing, and so this is kind of a timely moment, I'd like you to take note of the fact that the government is stepping in and is basically saying to Christians, you can't meet in your churches and your assemblies as you have before, even though the Constitution grants us free exercise or religion without government interference. I mean, it flat says it in the Constitution. But because they're claiming special conditions, we have an emergency situation, people are getting sick from COVID, why we've got to lock it down. Now, mind you, it's very selective on these lockdowns. Uh, the lockdowns are not happening in the main box stores. They're not happening in casinos. 
You know, they're not happening in, in other locations. And all of a sudden, uh, Christians are being oppressed. And while we can struggle and make it, you know, a lot of us are using the Internet, you know, to communicate and so forth. It's infringing, you know, on us. And in this particular case, the children of Israel had to go out there and gather their own straw in addition to making the bricks for them to be able to complete, uh, keep the bricks up. You know, it's, it's the first level of oppression. And I want you simply to take note of this as we get into this portion about where God is going to be having a problem uh, with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians following his lead. The next part that we have here is uh, beginning at verse uh, 20. And when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of the servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, I can tell you what the next level is going to be. For those believers who want to stand up against the oppression of the government and what will be coming, uh, other believers are going to break away. The, 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 there's going to be great disunity in the faith. Some are going to be saying, we need to stand up against these things. Others are going to say, oh, leave us alone. You'll make us odious to the government. We don't, we don't want to break the law. We want to conform. And even though it'll be contrary to the things of the Lord and their faith, they won't stand up for their faith and for who they are. That's the second level of how this oppression works. So now it comes down to where Moses is going to have a conversation with the Lord about this. Verse 22, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why didst thou send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done harm to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. This is going to be probably the most interesting dynamic that will be starting at the Great Tribulation. We as the brethren, some are going to flee, some are not. It's going to be a highly oppressive environment. We have to flee, uh, you know, as a part of it. And things are kind of going to go into slow motion for the believers. They're not going to be seeing God do anything directly for them. They'll be taking a few actions, trying to... And, and they're going to be wondering, oh, my goodness, have we made a giant mistake here? Did we flee when we shouldn't have fled? You know, what's going on? All this has done has just brought trouble to us. So there's two points I want to share with you. Number one, the prophecy clearly says that at, at the end of the age, there will be a great falling away of the faith. A lot of people are just not going to make this. They're not going to make the, make the transition. The other is that we're going to find out what that principle called wait on the Lord means. One of the things I've shared with people before, and I'll pose the same question based on this example. In the greater Exodus, what happens and what are you going to do if you see the prophecies of the start of the Great Tribulation, you see the Passover to escape, and you escape? And you go into the camp of the righteous with the other brethren, and the Lord doesn't do anything for a week. You're just out there camped out with your brother. Hmm. What are you going to do if it goes two weeks? What are you going to do if it goes a month? Are you going to hang in there and still believe the prophecies? Believe what the Lord has said? 
Mind you, the children of Israel couldn't make it 40 days with Moses up on the mountain with nothing happening. I'm very concerned that we have to truly believe what God has said and these prophecies, just like our ancestors did, truly needed to believe <clears throat> when Moses came to him with the message, we're leaving Egypt. So that's the stage that's set, and I want you to take note of the questions that Moses asked God. Number one, why hast thou brought this harm to this people? Number two, why didst thou ever send me? Number three is, um, ever since I came to speak thy name, this people has done harm, thou hast not delivered thy people. And that's a pretty stunning indictment coming from Moses. The people are being hurt. Why in the world am I here? Why did you send me? And when are you going to do something about this? Kind of, that was kind of his dialogue. So what's now going to be in our portion for this Shabbat is the answer to those questions. So keeping those questions in mind, let's see what chapter 6 has to say. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of the land. Basically what the Lord has said was, we needed to let Pharaoh get to the point where he is in contention with me. We needed to, with this problem that we've got, it, it needed to come forward. It needed to be exposed. It's really him having a problem with me. And oh, by the way, in the present world situation where we're at, the governments don't have a problem with us. Other people don't have a problem with us. They have a problem with God. And right now, one of the things that you can see all around is the governments and those in rule and so forth, and though the society as a general, they don't want God's rules. They don't want anything to do with God. So they don't like religious people, by the way. They don't like any of the things associated with the goodness and wholesomeness and the blessings of the Lord. They want to do it themselves. And of course, they don't want to listen to any commandments that come from the Lord, such as anything to do with sexual behavior or how we treat one another. They have their own self-righteousness about them, and they're in conflict with God. They're not in conflict with us. But we're going to catch the brunt of this. We're going to be the ones that help set the contention. And the Lord is coming back to judge the world. You know what? He's going to give the world an opportunity to put their best case forward before he judges them. And that's what's happening here is God now has the problem set up. And so the Lord says, now watch what I do. Uh, verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, Yahweh, some pronounce, I did not make myself known. That's a very interesting statement being made by God. It would indicate that God is going to be manifesting himself to the children of Israel slightly different than what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw. And oh, by the way, if God does that, as things move forward, God continues to manifest himself. Maybe that would explain why when the Messiah came, we saw some different aspects of God 
that maybe we didn't understand before. And maybe when the Holy Spirit was given to us, we saw some different aspects of God that hadn't before really been understood and manifested unto us. God is in the business of revealing himself. That's part of what a relationship is. If you're in a relationship with someone, as you, the relationship continues, you'll learn more and more about the other people. The other person learns more and more about you. In a relationship with God, why should it be any different? And God has a corporate relationship with the family of Jacob. And he's revealing himself more and more to them as it goes through. The reason I want to really put, pick that out is, you know, I've heard some, some of my Messianic Jewish brethren advocate that there has to be the use of the yod heh vav name. And it has to be because that's the power of which, by which salvation comes forth. And I would like to remind them that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know that name. And I guarantee you they are going to be in the kingdom and they are eternal creatures. And they have received salvation. So this business of, well, you've got to have the right pronunciation of the name or you've got to use it. Um, that, that's, um, that's how you, it's part of your salvation and so forth. Quite honestly, is nonsense. It, it doesn't fit into the doctrine of salvation at all. It fits into God revealing himself and manifesting himself. Thank goodness that we live in the day that we do where we get to see the benefit of what God has done with many others before us. So our faith should be even stronger than theirs was because we have more information about the Lord for us to walk by. Okay, so I wanted to make that point as we went through there. Verse 4, And I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. By the way, God remembered the covenant of the land of Israel back in those days. I can assure you that he's remembering the, the land of the covenant to this day. He promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And to this day, the contention in the Middle East is who owns the land. And I'm here to tell you that God has not given up on that covenant. That covenant still remains for Abraham and his descendants that that's the land that belongs to them through the Lord's covenant. Verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This particular phrase, there are four things specifically stressed here that deal specifically with the Exodus. Let me repeat for you in verse 6. I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you. It's from these four statements that the four Passover cups are formed for the memorial Passover of the Exodus. The first cup, the cup of sanctification, is I will bring you out. I will separate you. So the cup of sanctification is to separate the Passover meal from all other meals. Number two, I will deliver you. 
and where we have the cup of instruction. I will show you, recount the story, how I delivered you through these great judgments. And then the third cup is the cup of redemption, the cup that comes after the meal, the one that Yeshua used that said, this is the blood of, my, of the new covenant, and he formed the new covenant out of these promises of God uh, to as he became Messiah and the Redeemer for us. And finally, it says, I will take you, which is the cup of praise, the final cup of the Passover, which has to do with us being in the kingdom. We belong to the Lord. We're there with the Lord. These four statements by God are the basis for the four cups of the Passover. The end result of those is, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Um, it's kind of an interesting way of saying it, but it's spoken from God's standpoint and from our standpoint. I am the Lord your God. I will know you're the Lord your God. And that's the end result here. If you want to, what, what was really the goal for the children of Israel in this whole Egyptian exodus? It was that. What is the goal for us when we remember the Passover? That. What is the goal that we're supposed to be learning through the Messiah? That. He's our God and we know he's our God. And that is utterly profound. Those, um, if you're looking for some words that should be put on a plaque and stuck on the wall of your house to remind you every day, those are probably the words. You know, he is the Lord our God and we know he's the Lord our God. If we can get that principle straight in our heart, I can assure you that many other things of the faith are literally going to glide smooth. They will not have difficulties. This will work wonderfully for all of us. All right, verse 8, he says, And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That was the original promise to Abraham. You know, walk about the land. This is the land I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. He's reiterating that promise to us. By the way, that's the promise to us um, as well. But I'm not just being exclusive about just the land of Israel, that place over there in the Middle East. If you understand really the principle of the giving of the land, uh, the land of Israel is, is really just the down payment on the whole world. He's fully intending giving the whole world to us. And it's just that's the down payment part. That's the part that gets the contract and the promise going. And so he's made this promise, I will give you the land. But we know in the greater Israel, which is spoken of for the kingdom, it's the whole world. And the issue at the start of the Great Tribulation is the Antimacite is going to be disputing who owns the world. And whereas the Psalms 24.1 uh, uh, iterates when we speak over the altar, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that's what really is his to give. And he gives it to Abraham and to his descendants. Land of Israel was simply the first down payment uh, on the effort to accomplish that. Uh, verse 9, so Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. 
uh, in a strange sort of way, I'm glad those words are there. <laughs> because I think come here to the end of the age, I said, even though we reiterate, we show that there's a, an exodus and that's a prophecy of the greater exodus and we see the pattern and we find ourselves suddenly in those events, we see the greater uh, exodus taking place, guess what most people are where they're going to be at? Despondent and feeling cruel bondage. They'll, they'll feel oppressed. They're, they're not going to be happy about this. And this is going to be a little bit of a struggle for people. Uh, in fact, not a little bit. This is going to be a major struggle for a lot of people. And it will be important that we have leaders, those who know the Lord and know they, they know what the Lord's about, to be able to stand firm as Moses and Aaron did and other elders as they rose up, to be able to guide and lead the people so that in their despondency and because of the oppression that's already been upon them, that they'll, they'll rise up out of that. Remembering Egypt means Mitzrayim, trials and tribulations. The goal here is to get out of trials and tribulations. Don't let the trials and tribulations your wife love your life. Wife, excuse me, that was a Freudian slip if there ever was one. Um, out of your life. Um, I'm, I won't explain that later. Um, to get out of those things, Rather than wallow in them more, well, you need to break free of them. And that's what the Lord is doing here for the children of Israel, teaching them how to break free from Egypt. Verse 10, now the Lord spoke to Moses, say, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? I am an unskilled in speech. Moses got an interesting point here. I can't even get the believers to believe this. Why in the world would Pharaoh, our enemy, believe this? And so the Lord says, um, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, what exactly does that mean? He gave them a charge to do this particular thing. A lot of people don't know this, but when a person goes through ordination, you know, formal organization, what they actually receive is a charge from God. And this charge, for most uh, people who are ordained, is to charge them to carry out the work of the ministry, to minister to the brethren, and to speak the word of God. In other words, to do God's work in the lives of other people. And he empowers them to do it. And we as people recognize when you have someone who's ordained to do something, they've received this charge, that is the authority that they operate under. They don't operate on their own authority. Well, I thought it was a good idea. I love the Lord and I think everybody should love the Lord. No, no, no. This is completely different. This is the basis of how we and why we ordain certain people for certain tasks. And those that go into uh, full-time ministry will receive ordination uh, for those kinds of things. They receive a charge to do it. Now, what does that mean? That meant that Moses and Aaron are going to go talk to Pharaoh even if they don't have the agreement of the people. They have the authority from God to go deal with Pharaoh even though we're, we don't have the people behind us. 
A lot of leaders make the mistake of thinking, I need to get all the people to agree with me before I can go and do something. See, if I can get everybody to agree with me, then I'll go do it. But when it comes to things of the Lord and he wants you to do it, you don't need anybody to agree with you. In fact, even your own brethren, if they don't agree with you, well, that's too bad. I'm not relying on that. I don't need that. I have my ordination from the Lord. I have my charge from the Lord. I'm going to go do what the Lord has said because, you know, God plus one is a majority. So let's stop the majority game. Oh, I got to get a bunch of people to agree with this. I don't need anybody to agree with me. Now, I want to speak directly to the hearts of you. I love all of you. You know I love you. I want to do the best I can for you. But I don't need your approval to do it. And I'm not trying to do something to be disapproved. I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I'm trying to tell you the authority of the Lord. If the Lord tells you to do something, you don't need agreement from other people if that's what the Lord's done. Now, there's some other special rules that come with it because this is a very powerful thing and there are checks and balances, you know, in the whole system. So the, uh, just, but, but this is what Moses is being told. Moses and Aaron were given a charge from God even though the rest of the children of Israel weren't in full agreement with him and weren't backing him up. It was just them that was going to go do it. Now, from verse 14 down through the rest of this chapter, it's going to do a review of the descendants. It's going to get us to understanding who are the leaders and what happened to the sons of Israel, how long did they live, and so forth uh, for it. But I want you to um, take note of one particular verse here. We talked about before about um, when Moses was born and when Moses' mother was born. I want you to take note of verse 23 in part of this ancestral thing. And it says, and, uh, and Aaron, uh, no, excuse me, let me back up to verse 20. Amron, the father of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Amron married his father's sister, Yoshebel. Yoshebel was the one that was the 70th person who came down into Egypt. Married Yoshebel, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the length of Amron's life was 137 years. It doesn't tell you the length of life of Yoshebel, but I can assure you it was much longer than these. She outlasted all of her cousins and siblings. Um, because of that. And she was like the last of that generation of the, of the sons of Jacob that had come down into Egypt. And she bore um, Aaron and Moses uh, through her husband. And it goes on down to further say about, about Aaron. I want you to take note, verse 23. And Aaron, we know he will become the first high priest of Israel, married Elishavah, the daughter of Amenadav, now, the sister of Nakshan. Now, who in the world are those guys? They are of the tribe of Judah. The wife of Aaron, who will give birth to all of the priests of Israel. His wife was from the tribe of Judah. So it's Levi and Judah that have this key role 
with regard to the temple and the temple service. It was King David of the tribe of Judah who gathered the materials. It was King Solomon who built the temple. It was the Levites who were the priests in that temple. The connection between the two begins right here uh, while they're still in Egypt uh, getting ready to leave. And uh, verse 27 these were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the sons, Moses and Aaron. Now, it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Apparently, and this is the speculation, apparently Moses may have had a little bit of a speech impediment and he may have stuttered or something like that. Maybe he, he may have spoken in, in a soft, softer voice. But in any case, it, his voice really didn't match who the man was and to do this particular job. And so he's going to be giving directions to him. That Aaron will be your spokesman. And you will be taking directions from me. Chapter 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, See, I make you as a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, Moses is not a god, uh, but to Pharaoh he might as well have been God, you know, because he's the manifestation of the things of God, and Pharaoh is going to be, have to deal with Moses, whether he likes it or not. Same, that's what people do. People have to deal with God, whether they like it or not. And Pharaoh, under compulsion, will have to deal with Moses, just like any man does with God. You shall speak as I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh. Then he let the sons of Israel go out of the land. There's a very interesting leadership dynamic here. By the way, the Japanese use this extensively. And I'm reminded of... Uh, my hometown hero, General Dwight Eisenhower, who is in command of all of the Allied forces that were in Europe. When it came time for the Germans to surrender, and the moment that they came to sit down to sign the surrender, Eisenhower refused to meet with them. He sent his chief of staff to accept their surrender. That, in effect, Eisenhower was rising above the whole situation. And, uh, and the Japanese do this kind of thing as well, where the, they don't have the emperor deal directly, they have others deal with representing him. And this is part of the dynamic of leadership and the aura of leadership, and it's a very powerful thing. If, if, um, the, if you're in a dispute with someone and you uh, uh, send a person to represent you, you are still maintaining your dignity and leadership of who you are and letting them deal with those that are in contention, the enemy or whatever the case may be. And so that's what God is doing here. I'm going to set you up, Moses, like your God to Pharaoh, and we'll use Aaron to be your spokesman. So even Pharaoh's trying to represent himself. Moses doesn't represent himself because the truth of the matter is Moses is really representing the Lord in this particular case. And so this leadership dynamic is set up and that challenges the leadership of Pharaoh in a very special way. For those that are in 
uh, leadership of large companies and organizations and military leadership, they understand this dynamic uh, very well as to how all of this works. So he says, uh, I'm going to send you to uh, Pharaoh, and you're going to be telling Pharaoh to let the people go. Uh, but then he says, verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, before we go any further, we're going to hear this term repeatedly. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened, as these different judgments are false. So let's, let's address that right off the bat. A hard heart means that you behave in a treacherous way. You do not behave in a kindly or cooperative way. When a person's heart gets hard, that you can't, you can't get them to cooperate. You can't get them to agree on anything. In fact, what you do get out of them is you get more, more bitterness, more anger, and, and they'll act in a treacherous manner toward you. Uh, Pharaoh made the choice to harden his heart. It's just God set it up so that we could see it. So when it says that the Lord hardened his heart, all he did was make Pharaoh's heart visible. He just made it so that we could earn. It wasn't God, you know, manipulating and, and uh, playing with him. This is who Pharaoh's heart was. And he's manifesting and bringing it forward because that's the core issue of all unbelievers. All unbelievers had hard, have hard hearts toward God. And they have hard hearts toward God's servants. And, you know, it's the old story of the, um, uh, of where, you know, the wife antagonizes the husband and then he beats her and he says, you made me do this. No, she didn't. She didn't make him do anything. But he, in his thinking, his heart got harder, okay? She, she made his heart harder uh, in that situation, which is full of treachery. And, and, but the treacherous act of a misbehaving person is their own choice and decision. Nobody makes you become treacherous. You become treacherous because you choose to do so. So that's the key word when we see the word hardness of heart or the hardening of the heart. That's the key phrase. We're talking about the definition of treachery. Quite honestly, a lot of people are not familiar with what real treachery is. It's shocking uh, to understand it. It's like hate made manifest. It's like, you know, we, we know about love. You know, love is flowers and kisses and hugs and, and kindness and so forth. Treachery is what is manifested from a heart that hates. That's what is made manifest. So that's what we're going to be hearing here in the future as these judgments befall Egypt. And he goes on to say, verse 4, And when Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts and my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now, isn't that interesting? Um, this had to do with, these judgments have to do with knowing the Lord. 
That's what is the result. When he judges them, then you get to know who the Lord is. And we're going to see a whole process of them where the Lord will be saying, do this judgment so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He will do another judgment and say, so you, Pharaoh, will know I am the Lord. And then he'll do another judgment and he'll say, so that the whole world will know that I am the Lord. So at this great tribulation, the thing that will come in here, I wonder what God's objective is. Well, I can break the code for you on that real quick. All these judgments that will befall the earth and all that will be taking place is for the purpose so that the whole world and we will know the Lord. That's the goal here because the fact of the matter is the world doesn't know the Lord. They don't know the Creator. They don't know the Redeemer. And they don't know who the real king is. So all of that's going to be made manifest by great judgments. And that's what he's explaining to Moses. That's what's happening. And that's why we have to have these judgments. So back up for a moment. If we had a different objective, if the objective had been, well, let's save the children of Israel out of bondage. Well, I have a whole new plan for God on how to accomplish that. That would be, I'll just blind the Egyptians for a couple of days and we'll walk out. And they would be delivered. But you see, that wasn't God's objective just to save the people. God's objective was so that everyone would know who the Lord is. And the reason we're going to have a greater exodus at the end of the age is for the exact same reason. It will not just be to save us. And that's an important point for the tribulation saints to remember this. God is not acting at the end of the age purely to save us and deliver us. We are going to be saved. We are going to be delivered. But the real purpose of what he's doing is so that the world will know who the Lord really is. So keep that in mind and encourage one another with it. Don't, don't misunderstand what God's purposes and roles here. And he states all of this up front. He tells us exactly what his thinking is, what his purposes are, what his plan is as we continue on. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron did it as the Lord commanded them. They thus did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw, threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it came, uh, became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. But each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. There's been a fascinating study on this done. And somebody went back and discovered how the Egyptians did this trick. Uh, what they would do is they would take a serpent and apparently grab it by the tail, and they'd swing it multiple times, and the snake would become stiff, and the blood would rush to the head, and it would basically go unconscious. And the, stake, the, the snake would be stiff, its muscles locked up. So they could walk in with what appears to be a stick. 
then they drop it on the ground and the blood flow returns and the serpent wakes up and, and begins to move around and so forth. So that was the trick that they used to do uh, so that they claim they do it. However, uh, the serpent that Moses' staff, Aaron threw down, ate the others. Now, that's quite a feat. You know, when you see a snake eat a couple of other snakes. That's kind of fascinating all by itself just to watch that. I've seen some videos of snakes eating stuff. I hate snakes, but I find it fascinating when I see that kind of stuff going on. And I'm certain that this was very fascinating to Pharaoh and very compelling for the people to see. Now, they should have gotten the message that there's something different about this serpent that's with Moses and Aaron compared to the serpents that was with the magicians of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh is going to refer to it just as a cheap trick. He's not going to be believing this. He's not going to believe that that's a representation of the power of God. But it does answer one thing. And that is that Pharaoh asked them, well, show me a trick. Show me a sign. And a lot of times when you go to people, when they want to be in contention with you, they want you to show a sign. They, they want to find something, you know, that you can't do that they can then argue and prove, well, you're not really who you are. You're not representing the message uh, correctly. And I don't have to pay attention to you and I'm ignoring you. Uh, part of the reason why a prophet will give a prophecy is to show the sign that the Lord has sent him. Uh, and that's the reason why they look, they want to find contentious things about when people say. Many years ago, uh, when I began to teach about the Great Tribulation and began to teach about the prophetic scenario of it, how it starts and things like that, I began to compare what were the things that start the Great Tribulation with world events. Uh, and for example, since the start of the Great Tribulation is supposed to be an altar on the Temple Mount that gets shut down, and that's the first event, obviously getting an altar built to begin with is a very important prerequisite to that. Israel having control of the Temple Mount so they can build that altar is a very important prerequisite. Israel having control of the city of Jerusalem so that they can go to the Temple Mount and do that is a very important prerequisite. There being a nation of Israel where the Jewish people return to the land is a very important prerequisite to that step. So what we have done over the course of the years is I have basically explained this is the prophetic scenario. This is the start of the Great Tribulation. It's part of the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist comes forward, and we have this altar situation. What I began to look, not only to teach what does the prophecy say, but I began to look around the world and say, do we have any of these conditions getting ready to happen? And the whole time I was teaching this, I was teaching what I call, since I'm an engineer type, I was teaching if-then logic. If this happens, then that will happen, according to the authority of the Word of God. If this happens, that will happen. Guess what? When I first went out and I learned about some of my brethren, they don't hear the if part. They don't listen to that. Oh, he said there was going to be the start of the Great Tribulation. With dismissing all of the instruction about what I had given with regard to it. So as a result, 
when we saw particular time frames coming up, and I gave warning that, look, we're looking, this is starting to look serious, but there's other conditions that are starting to be met. Uh, why then everybody uh, is going around saying, oh, I prophesied about the coming of the Lord. In fact, I had, they went so far as to say, I was prophesying exactly when the Lord would come, what date, everything. Well, of course, uh, the Lord didn't meet the prerequisites. I backed off and said, well, this is not the year. But did that stop other brethren to, from trying to find issue with me? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, they distorted that, blew that all out of proportion. And so guess what? Monty became known on the internet and elsewhere as a false prophet. Let me go ahead and say something about that. I've put up with that for a long time. Primarily because the Lord has told me that this is the way my brethren behave and I still should continue to love them and that I can't speak curses on them, although they speak curses on me. I need to speak blessings on them so that I'll receive blessings. They're the descendants of Abraham as well. But more importantly, let me go back to my calling of the Lord. And that has to do with my charge. I don't care if you agree with me or not. Honestly. In fact, I'm not even asking you to believe me. But I do want you to believe that I believe. I want you to know that I do believe what the Lord has said, and I'm holding to it. And I'm not going to be deflected just because you want to treat me with disdain or discourage me or be upset with me. Moses and every prophet of Israel is put up with the same thing from their brethren, and there's nothing different today. True men of God are always going to run into a hassle with other brethren, especially when it's things they don't want to hear. And I don't care if you are a believer. If you don't want to hear it, you'll act against it. Unless you're wise. Unless you follow the example, of, for example, of Jacob, who when he heard the prophecy that one day he would bow down before Joseph, while he didn't like it, he still pondered it in his heart. And let me recognition in the same manner for you. You might want to pay attention to this business I taught you about that altar thing. And if you see an altar get built, you might want to pay real close attention to that daily sacrifice. And in particular, pay real close attention when they shut it down. Because that's day one of the Great Tribulation. And from that, I think you'll figure out what to do. But don't be ignoring it and don't misunderstand it. It's very, very important to know those things. So Moses is going to be doing these things before Pharaoh. He doesn't need the people's agreement and, and he doesn't care if Pharaoh wants to play games with him. He's going to continue to persist. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. There's another one of those steps. Pharaoh now starts thinking in more hateful terms and treacherous terms. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take your hand, the staff that was turned into a serpent and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but behold, you have not listened until now. 
Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with a staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. I want you to take you back to the staff. He used the staff to demonstrate with the serpent, and that's the same staff that's going to have this power on the river Nile. And he's trying to get Pharaoh to understand, you know, you thought that was some dumb trick. Let me show you that's no trick. There's real power and authority in there. I'm going to take the same staff that became a serpent. I'm going to strike the water and it's going to become blood. The very thing you already saw is going to be the very thing that judges you uh, before him because you did not listen and you did not pay attention. That's dealing with the hardness of Pharaoh's heart uh, for it. And verse uh, 18, and the fish that were in the Nile will die and the Nile will become foul and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out over the hand of the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams and over their pools and over all the reservoirs of water that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. And the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was all through the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So let's talk about that for a moment. If all of the water in Egypt was turned into blood, what did the children of Israel do? That's an interesting question. Now, it doesn't say so, but because I know the nature of God's judgments, how they fall upon unbelievers but not unbelievers... I have a feeling that Moses may have put the word out to the children of Israel, collect water and get water into your homes, every container. And so when this judgment fell upon Egypt, their water was not affected. They had water to drink, whereas the others didn't have water to drink. And so it became, it, this is the first stage of he separates out the judgments from the children of Israel from those of the Egyptians. Later on, it'll say the words that God wanted to show a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and that he used these judgments to show forth that distinction. That encourages me, because when I hear about the, some of the great judgments that will happen in the Great Tribulation, some of them do affect natural resources that we're going to need. And I have a feeling, uh, and will be confirmed when we get there, that things are going to fall upon the world and the rest of the country that won't be falling upon us. And that God will show a distinction between those that are his and those that are not. And so this is the, the beginning uh, of these elements to uh, take place. By the way, it says the Egyptians were able to do this trick. I'm not where they got the water from to do the trick. I have done this trick. I learned how to do this trick. I learned how that you can take two jars, one with water, one without. 
and that I could pour that water into it and make it into wine. And I'll tell you how you do it. It's a very simple trick to do. You take some of that Kool-Aid black cherry powdered stuff and you stick it in the bottom of the one jar. So when you pour the water in, it turns into a beautiful color of wine, beautiful color of red wine. Now, it doesn't taste like wine. It tastes like Kool-Aid, but it looks like wine. And, uh, and so whatever the magicians did, they did something that changed the appearance of the water to look red. And as a result, they claimed they were doing the same trick. That's how simple uh, that was in for this verse to take place. They were telling Pharaoh, it's just a trick and we, we, we can do the same trick. By the way, uh, the staff or, or the, the magicians of Egypt are only going to be able to recognize uh, the first three judgments and they'll be able to do their version of it. But on the fourth one, they will be telling Pharaoh that this is the finger of God. And that's a very interesting phrase because they're not saying it's the hand of God because at this point the magicians are realizing what God is doing to us is little dinky things. He's not doing what he really could do. I mean, he could just wipe the place clean if he wanted to. But he's, doing, he's like playing with them. He's like using the little finger and flicking them with his little finger you know, uh, of the judgment. They are getting it, but Pharaoh doesn't want to get it uh, from that. Now, they go through the water thing, and so the Egyptians are out digging for new wells. Seven days passed before that was over with. Seven days, Egypt went without water. You can survive that, but boy, is that uncomfortable. What follows is a judgment now of frogs, and frogs came up over the land, and finally Pharaoh begged for relief. Moses gave relief to him, um, and they left, but then Pharaoh's heart was hardened again. And we're going to have the other judgments leading all the way up through the first seven judgments in this portion. My time is running out. I can't go through each one of them. If you go through Passover Seder, you'll be reminded of each one of them, uh, you know, for it. But I want you to take note in verse 22 of chapter 8. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. Verse 23, and I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. Um, the, and I think that's what God is going to do in the great tribulation, in the greater exodus. As the judgments of the book of Revelation befall the earth, I don't believe those judgments will befall the believers, particularly in the camps of the righteous when they have fled and escaped. Uh, like I said, we'll have to wait and see, see how all this pans out. But this is, if I could just conclude here with the way I started this particular portion. If you're looking for a Torah portion that is about you today, you might want to pay attention to this one. Because it's foretelling you what are the same things going to be happening at the end of the age. When we have the greater exodus, like when Jeremiah said, the day is coming when you use the word exodus, you will not be referring to ancient Egypt. You will be referring to when God brings up his people from the north, the south, the east, and the west, from all the nations of the world. Those are the steps of the final redemption leading to the return of the Lord and the days of the great tribulation. All right, we will take up our next portion next week, and that will include the Passover and the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Shalom, everyone.